So if you will, please turn in your Bibles to John chapter 20. As we'll be continuing in our study of the book of John. Actually, just this week and next week, we'll be continuing in our study in the book of John as we'll be finishing this book up. Today we're going to be looking at a character that has been known throughout Scripture as, or throughout history as Doubting Thomas, and why I don't think that's a good nickname. Before we go to that, before we come to the text, let's go to the Lord in prayer, ask for his help with it. Lord Jesus, as we come to your word, help us. We are, at best, recovering from ultimate unbelief and still struggling with it at times. We completely get what Thomas is going through here, and so we pray that you would help us. Help us to believe. Lord, help our unbelief. Teach us from your word. Convict us of our sins and show us the truth. It's in your name we pray. Amen. So Thomas's nickname, Doubting Thomas, again, helped, made me think about nicknames, and I have a particular group of friends, and we have lots of nicknames um, in our little friend group, um, and they're just names that we typically use with one another, and they kind of sometimes started as ways to make fun of one another, and of course, they've kind of stuck, some of them have anyway, and again, the nicknames of that that way typically aren't have to do with something we can't change about ourselves. For instance, I'm often made fun of for the size of my head because it's big. Um, we have another friend that we call Eyes because he has big eyes. And uh, another friend that we call uh, Gappa Del Tatha because he's got a gap in his teeth. And You get the idea. Um, these are all terms of endearment. Trust me, I promise. We love one another and care about one another. Uh, we've known one another for 20 years, most of us, and so uh, they're fun nicknames. Nicknames have a way of sticking with people, um, even when they're bad. For instance, Thomas, the Apostle, has a nickname called Doubting Thomas. It's not really a good nickname. He received this nickname because of this text that we'll consider today. The fact that he said he actually needed to see and touch the wounds on Jesus to believe that he had risen from the dead. And who can blame him? Even though Jesus had done some extraordinary things, rising from the dead would completely take the cake, right? For sure. So Thomas wanted more proof, and he would get that proof. However, I'll say, and it's been said a lot before, that Thomas wasn't the doubter that he's often been made to be. That he's received this bad nickname, and he doesn't really deserve it, if you ask me. Not only do we read about his doubt, but we also read what I believe to be the clearest profession of faith in all of Scripture concerning our Lord Jesus Christ, concerning the nature of our Lord Jesus Christ. And it comes from his lips, Thomas. And so, I think, again, Thomas gets a bad rap that we've all heard that we shouldn't be a doubting Thomas, for instance, when in fact I wish I was more like Thomas oftentimes. And so today, as we consider this text, I want us to look at two main ideas, the proof that Thomas needed and the hope that the world needs. So with that, let's look at the text, John chapter 20, 
verses 24 through 31. Let's stand together as we read from God's Word. John chapter 20, 24 through 31. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails, and place my finger into the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands. Put your hand, or put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen me and have yet believed. Now Jesus did many other things and did many other signs in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Amen. This is God's word. You can be seated. So just just a quick word on this text and its place in the book of John. Um, I believe this particular text of John to be the climax of the book. To be the, this is the statement that John wants us to hear concerning this entire gospel. I think the next chapter, chapter 21, is kind of an epilogue to the book, almost like... um, almost like the after credits a little bit, this this closing section of the book. And so I really think that John meant that this last little bit, where the whole idea and thought behind his work would culminate, this idea about belief. We know that John is under the direction of the Holy Spirit, of course, but his gospel stands out as more than just a biography of Jesus but rather a text that wants us to encounter this singular idea within the ministry and work of Jesus Christ. And what idea is that? At the forefront, I believe, of his text. That's the idea of belief. How often have we encountered that and have we gone through that in this text? I mean, over and over again throughout this book. This is our 47th week in the book of John, And I would say that well over half of the texts that we've discussed have been about this idea of belief. And so, why is that? Well, John tells us here that by believing we might have life in his name. And so as we consider this text today, consider this passage, I want you to think about this as kind of the climax of this text, or as this whole book. Even though we won't finish until next week, consider how we've been challenged with our belief and with our unbelief as believers, and how our Lord and His goodness has walked with us, and how He does so with Thomas in this passage. So first, we'll look at the proof that Thomas needed. We've only had a real quick word from Thomas in this book so far, so he's a relatively new character. He just did one little thing. And so I think this again serves John's purpose here. We've dealt closely with Peter 
and his rocky road that he's gone through, this, this ups and downs. We've even dealt with John's character a little bit, even though he's kind of been the behind-the-scenes, never-named guy. And now we have a disciple that is basically unknown, but he's still among the twelve, or the eleven now. And so we are reminded here that the reader of this text was probably Greek-speaking, and I think that's why John gives us the word for twin uh, in Greek as well as in Hebrew. Didymus is the Hebrew word for uh, twin, or no, the Greek word for twin, and Thomas is the Hebrew word for twin. Uh, A lot of scholars think Thomas was a twin. Just a little interesting fact there. It's important that we're told that he was one of the twelve, Thomas, one of the twelve, because of what we see next. Thomas had serious doubts about the truth. He had doubts about the claims of his fellow disciples as they came in, the claim to have seen the risen Lord, and he has doubts about this. This doubting isn't good, and don't don't hear me saying that. It's not a right thing to have these doubts, but it doesn't make him less of an apostle anyway. John wrote this text a long time after Thomas was dead, probably, and so he considers him one of the twelve. The biblical idea behind the calling of an apostle is that all apostles were directly called by Jesus and that they saw Jesus in his resurrected form. The eleven remaining apostles all had this qualification. And Paul, who would later come, saw the Lord as he was on his way to Damascus. And the Lord literally threw him off his horse and was called directly right there by the Lord. All of those men were able to say, yes, I was called by Jesus. He called me directly to go out and send the message of the gospel, the message to the church. They were all qualified directly. And of course, this is why we don't have apostles today. The office is closed. It's a very special office. It doesn't matter how often someone calls themselves an apostle or the fact that they put that in front of their name arbitrarily. They aren't one in the biblical sense. This office was for these 11 men and Paul, the ones who started the church, the the ones who first wrote down these stories that we read and preach the gospel until they were all killed for it. So Thomas, an apostle, says this. And I want you all to see this. This is an apostle again. Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Thomas may have grew up with me in Missouri, the show me state. He wanted to see it. He wanted to be able to touch it. We all get this to some extent. He wanted to see that Jesus was really alive. A lot of doubt mixed with the fact that he probably wanted to protect his heart from getting his hopes up. Remember, they walked with Jesus for three years. They did everything with him. They just lost their friend in a very public way. Can you imagine being told after that that your friend was really alive? You would want to guard your heart too. Thomas is a mere man. And so Jesus appears in the room again somehow. 
We don't really know how he does that. Something to do with the fact that he's the great I Am, Sovereign Lord of the Universe, and we'll just keep it at that. He shows up. He gives his standard greeting, Peace be with you. Then immediately, I love this, immediately goes to Thomas and addresses him. And I think it's good for us because many times we struggle with unbelief. We all do. And that, that unbelief manifests itself in lots and lots of different ways in our lives. We want to do that in secret, I think, a lot of times because of the shame that we're afraid that our unbelief might bring to us. Because remember, we're supposed to be Christians. We're supposed to believe this stuff wholeheartedly, or at least act like it. I know in college I was in a ministry, and if you showed the slightest bit of doubt or questioning, you got this kind of weird black mark that only other people could see on your head, and you carried it with you until you were somehow able to work it back off. Showing doubt was twice as bad as showing faith was good. Meaning that doubt was given much more weight than faith was. And I I feel like a lot of times we do that. Many times we feel like we can't talk about these things because it will make us seem less faithful or not as strong as a Christian as we think we are. I think the the right answer is to first understand that sometimes... We are less faithful. And sometimes we aren't good Christians, whatever that is. Secondly, we have to understand that that's okay. Doubt is sin, and don't let, don't let me say anything else. Doubt is indeed a sinful thing. But because of Jesus, our sin is covered up. And there's no need for shame or secrecy concerning our doubt, concerning our struggle. It's something that we should talk about openly and discuss, particularly as a way for us to bear one another's sins, brothers and sisters. This is how we help one another. If you had to just sit and waste away in secret about your doubt, that would be horrible. But we help one another. We bear one another's burdens. If you're never allowed to talk about these kinds of things, they can eat away at you. Hidden things tend to do lots and lots of damage when they go unchecked. And so Jesus went directly to Thomas because he knew that his heart, he knew his heart, he knew that he needed to immediately address his doubt and unbelief. And I think we would do well to realize that we have a Savior that does the exact same thing for us, that he's never ashamed of us because of our unbelief. And so what does Jesus have him do? He says, put your finger here and see my hands. Put out your hand and place it into my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. He exhorts him. Do not doubt, but believe. Doubt is not something we can remain in as a Christian. We will all have those times. Again, we're all going to struggle. But this is not a permanent state of being for the believer. Thomas needed proof for this time in his life. And Jesus gave it to him. Why? Because Thomas had to take the message of the gospel to the ends of the earth. That Jesus saves. And that anyone who believes in his name... They can be saved. 
Thomas immediately sees the Lord for who he is. Right here, right there, in front of the Lord. And what does he say? My Lord and my God. This perfect profession of who Jesus is. The Lord and God of all creation. The Almighty God of Abraham, of Isaac, of Jacob, of Moses, of David, and Thomas, and each one of us. If someone ever doubts that the New Testament ever calls Jesus God, take them here. There's nothing to do with this text other than to believe it or disbelieve it. So what can we do when we struggle with doubt? What can we do when we struggle with this sense of disbelief? We don't have Jesus here with us, do we? We can't put our fingers in His hands and in His side. What proof do we have? And that leads us to this next point, the hope that the world needs. Why do we believe? We believe because of the testimony of the apostles. What did the apostles tell us about? They told us about what Jesus did while He was on this earth. Note that Jesus makes sure that we understand here at the last part of his address with, with Thomas, he makes sure that we understand that we are at no disadvantage when it comes to belief in him, even though we've never seen him. We have the direct testimony of those who witnessed his works, of those who were with him after his resurrection. Those men who were inspired by the Holy Spirit of God to write down the things that they saw John even tells us that Jesus did many other things that were not written down in this book. But why did He choose the ones that He chose? So that we might believe. Remember in the Old Testament, when Moses delivered Israel out of Egypt, remember all the works that God did associated with that act. He basically... Uh, destroyed Egypt with like bugs and insects and darkness and killing their firstborn and then destroyed their army with a wave called the whole Red Sea and then had them follow them around on, with a pillar of fire and a pillar of cloud, these incredible acts. Why did he do this? So that they would believe. Remember reading the prophets, men like Elijah and Elisha and the miracles that they performed. Why did they do that? so that the wayward people of God might believe. So what is associated with those times of and wonders that God... Uh, what, so what is associated with those miracles that He performed? His giving of the Word to His people. This is why we no longer have revelation today. Because in this book we have the very works of God written down by men who witnessed them. When people are given some when people give some kind of special revelation today, what is, what is it about? Where did it come from? It usually had some dream that they experienced in private or some vision that they experienced in private. These acts that we read about were for the glory of God. They were very public things and they were done so that we might be saved. These special revelations that people get are often for one thing, 
the glory of man. The Gospel of John isn't, so in that way then, the Gospel of John isn't for me to be a better person, but for me to see salvation. It is for my salvation. We are told in this Gospel about the works of Jesus. We are also given his teachings on how to be a follower of Christ and how a follower of Christ should live, and that's good. But have you ever noticed the part that the world tends to take away? When, a, when the world, when the unbeliever comes to the Scriptures, what do they take away from it? They take away his teachings. They say things like, Jesus was a great teacher. He was a great moral example. Or, if everyone just followed the teachings of Christ, then the world would be a better place. Christians should follow their, what they believe. And you hear things like this. And, and unfortunately, I think, sadly, the church has kind of grabbed hold of that message over the years. And they've copied this message. And we preach things along with prophets like Lennon and McCartney. All you need is love. Love is all you need. Or the great prophet Bob Marley. One love. Let's get together and feel all right. Is that the hope of the gospel? That we can get together and feel all right? That we can love one another? Imagine the apostles, first century, taking the message to the poor and oppressed people of Asia Minor and Europe, all these poor and oppressed people that needed the gospel, that needed salvation. The Apostle Peter standing up and saying, Hello, poor and needy. Greetings, oppressed people, slaves of the world. I have a message of hope for you. Love one another. Thank you. I'll be here all week. Can you imagine that? If that was the message that we have, hey, let's get together and feel all right. Let's love one another. All you need is love. No. The apostles taught the hope that we have in the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Remember what Paul said, believe that Jesus rose from the dead, then you'll be saved. John said, the things that these things are written that you may believe, and by believing you may have life in his name. You want to know what Peter said? Turn with me to 1 Peter. We looked at this passage last week. Turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 1. First Peter chapter 1, I'm going to read 3 through 8. We want to know what Peter thought about the hope of the gospel. Remember Peter who doubted? Remember Peter who was afraid of the little girl by the campfire? And who denied Jesus three times? This is what he says is the hope of the gospel. First Peter chapter 1 verse 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. To what? An inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. In this you rejoice. Though for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved with various trials, so that the tested genuine, or genuineness of your faith, 
more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by the fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor that is, that is at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Get this. This is almost like he and John were there together when they heard Jesus say that. Though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not see him now, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and is filled with glory. This is the hope that we have. This is the message that the apostles took to the world. Far be it from us that we take any other message out to the world. Why do you think Christianity spread like wildfire among the poor and oppressed? Because the message wasn't about them. It was about hope beyond their own weakness, beyond their own struggle. It was about the hope of something that was stored up in a place that the worst people in the world couldn't touch. It's an incredible message. Tim Keller says of this passage, If we preach that Jesus is just a teacher, if we just preach that his teachings were good, then that is about us and about what we can do. But if we preach about what he did, then it becomes about him. Make sure you're hearing me. For the believer, we must teach and preach the commandments of Jesus Christ for the Christian. The law should be a sweet word to the believer's ear, and it teaches us how to walk closer with him. However, for the unbeliever, how can we teach dead men and women to walk? They're dead in their trespasses. What do they need? They need hope for a new life, to be born again, to be made new. That is the hope of the resurrection. That's why we preach the resurrection every single Sunday, because that's the only hope that we have. And so in conclusion, for us, in our struggle with unbelief, what do we trust? When we, when we are having trouble with belief, we trust the words of the apostles who also struggled, like we see here with Thomas. But they were chosen to tell us because they were there. They were directly called by the incarnate and resurrected Lord. For the world, what is our message? Believe on the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Call upon him and be saved. It's really that simple. And sorrow and death can be turned to joy inexpressible, to full of, full of glory, not just for today, but for, more importantly, for all eternity. And let me, if that's you, if you're struggling with unbelief, if you are an unbeliever, that's the instruction. You don't need love. You need Jesus. Call upon him and be saved. It's how sinners like you and I will one day get to wear a crown, all thanks to the saving work of Jesus Christ. And so let that be our message, brothers and sisters. This is what Jesus did for you. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, help us. We want, we want the message to be about what we can do and about what they should be doing because we want the glory. We want to be seen as the good guy. But you are the good guy. You are the one who is faithful, even when I'm faithless. 
And so, Lord, help my message to be about the truth, the hope of the resurrection, that we have victory, that we have eternal life through what you did. And so, Lord, help that to be our message to the world. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.